So I jumped in into the middle of John Gray's sermon series. <laughs> I got his permission, so don't worry. Um, he's been teaching on seeing the scriptures. This thing's really annoying. He's been teaching on seeing the scriptures, uh, word pictures in scriptures. Um, super annoying. Sorry. Oh, well. All right. There's grace for everything. So, word pictures in, in scripture. Um, and we'll get into a little bit of where he's been at. But today, I'm going to speak to you about Sabbath, the Sabbath, and... rest. And those kind of sound like ideas, but I'm going to show you that they're actually word pictures. So as a little bit more background, um, one of the things that I kind of get where John got this idea, it wasn't his and it's not mine. Uh, and it's not even, even Greg's. It's, it's the Bible's idea of word pictures. It, uh, hopefully you've seen that with so much insurmountable evidence from the word, um, how these, these pictures are used to bring life to God's word. Um, we get the idea of patterns from, from scripture. Like that's, God is a God of patterns, okay? He's a God that has prescribed ways and ways we can know how he operates and who he is. I mean, if you're reading the word of God, the main thing you're trying to get out of it is, who is God? What is he like? Can I know God, right? If, if you look at any issue in the world, uh, whatever it is, whether it's, um, you know, areas of concern like evangelism, like what should we do about evangelism? Or if it's like, how should we do our liturgy? You know, and if there's issues of people doing it wrong, you know, heresies or, or just waywardness, those always come back to wrong ideas about God and who he is. And so primarily we're trying to see who God is and God is a God of patterns. He does it in a way that it's easy for us to know who he is because he says it over and over and over and over again. And hopefully we pick up on it. So word pictures are a type of pattern, okay? It's a, a pattern of God's ways of speaking about things. So John previously has talked about nakedness and shame and how God covers us. That's the word picture you should see. Is like, oh, nakedness equals shame, and I am naked and ashamed, and I need covered and God covers me. Like he spends all of the Bible talking about nakedness and shame just so that you'd get the idea that you'd get it when God says, I'm going to cover you. Right? And he does the same thing with curses. You know, John spoke about that. Um, pretty graphic, but needed sermon on curses because that's imagery. It should bring to your mind like, your mind's eye, like all this, you know, it, it's very graphic. It's, it's something that should invoke an, a response from you. And that response is, man, I don't want to be that guy who's cursed. <laughs> and so when God says, I'll bear the curse for you, that should be a big deal. And same with the vine and the fig tree. You hear this image over and over again, and eventually you should get the idea like the whole earth needs filled with God's kingdom, right? And so hopefully today I'll, I'll show you how, what the Sabbath looks like, what rest looks like in the Bible, and then how it points to God and his providence. So first we're going to talk about how to picture the Sabbath, right? Um, again, I like kind of talked about, it. I think in our, our minds, we, you know, cause we're Sabbath is like in our heads is a Jewish word or like a high church word. Um, we, you know, we talk about Sunday 
and equate it with church and stuff, and we don't make that connection with the Sabbath, and we don't really know what the Sabbath looks like in that culture, so it's just an idea, and I don't think it's really a picture in our heads, and hopefully we'll establish that, and we'll establish that it's a picture of rest, and we'll use uh, what Scripture calls holy convocations to, to broaden our idea of that picture. And then we'll talk about the purpose of the Sabbath, right? Remember, the most important thing here is like, I want you to come away today understanding that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Okay? And then we're going to talk about how to enter rest. Because again, I'm, I'm making a connection here between the Sabbath and rest. And I'm going to establish that they're almost synonyms. They're very similar ideas. They're tied really closely in God's, God's eyes. They're, you should get similar pictures in your head when you talk about Sabbath and rest. And we're going to talk about entering that is, is truly like faith in God. It's not avoiding work. Okay? It's faith in God. And then I'm going to give us a reminder of... Uh, Tiffany alluded to this earlier uh, about the book recommendation we have for A.W. Tozer, and I'll speak to you about that a little bit more and how it ties into this sermon. So let's start with how to picture the Sabbath. Leviticus 23, if you'd join me there. Well, that's... That is not Leviticus 23. Let me, is there a Bible up here? You guys know Leviticus 23 off head, right? <laughs> so the point here with Leviticus 23 is the whole thing, you don't, I'm not gonna read it all because it's a whole chapter. And it, for some of us, it's like the kind of stuff we get bogged down in when we're reading through our Bible. And we go, I'll just read this really fast. And, you know, uh, like at, I'll read it at 1.5 times speed and not understand any of it. Because I've done this a ton. And I actually, like, didn't even, I probably couldn't have told you all the feasts of the Lord until I read this chapter specifically for this sermon. Okay. <laughs> So, it's important though. And it starts with talking about, I'll just go to this, this here. It begins speaking, it lists them all, right? And the first one is the Sabbath, right? I, hopefully we're all a little familiar with it, but the Sabbath is the weekly solemn rest that the Lord has set apart. Why? Because we go back to Exodus 20.11. We read that today. That's awesome. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. For that reason, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So there we're establishing rest and Sabbath together. All right, and a point here I want to make is that there's a principle that's used a lot in Scripture where the first covers the whole, or the whole is, is caught up in the first. When you read the first, you can understand the whole, okay? And that works with these, with the Ten Commandments. You look at the first commandment, right? To have no other gods besides the one true God. All the other commandments lie in that. Like, we need to worship God. He is first and, foremost, first and foremost in our lives, and all the other commandments tell us how to do that. And so this first holy convocation, so to speak, this, and that word holy, that phrase holy convocation is really just, a, it's a way of saying like a, a called out assembly almost, or a, a meeting. Like you're gathering together, okay? So coming to church on Sunday is a holy convocation. It's the purpose of a convocation is coming together and for holy purposes, for God's purposes. So it's 
the first one listed, and it, it's the weekly one. It's the one that the Lord's saying all these other ones are like this one. Okay, that's what I want to get across. I'm establishing that all these other ones are like this one. That's why they're in the same chapter together, right? And there's a, a pattern we see when we look through these or of like to get an idea of what they are like. So I want to explain what they were for and what they would look like. Um, pretty brief. You can do more research. There's books written about all of these days. <laughs> so the first point is the Sabbath. It represents the whole. So when we read Exodus 20:11 and what God says about the Sabbath, we're thinking about all these other days. Then there's the Passover. And the Passover was significant. It was a remembering of the Israelites in Egypt. When the angel of death swept through Egypt. And if hopefully you're familiar with this. The Lord gave them instruction. He said, paint the doorposts. with lamb's blood and the angel of death won't come in. Because what was the angel of death coming to do? He was coming to take the life of every firstborn son. And again, remember, the first encapsulates the whole. He's saying when the firstborn son dies, it's saying your, your line, your family, this nation is done. My judgment's on all of you, not just the firstborn who dies. My judgments on all of you. And so God gave them this, this providential instruction and, and says, I'm going to save you from your oppressors. I'm going to save your entire nation by saving your firstborn sons. Not just the firstborn sons of the people, but like the firstborn animals died, like the firstborn of everything died. And God's like, I'm going to save you. And so they remember that with this feast, this Passover, this holy convocation. They remember God's providence for them. So then we go on to the feast of first fruits. Again, the first fruits encapsulate the whole. What they're saying when they come, it's a feast of, think, or of trust. They're saying, we trust you, God, by coming and taking the first fruits and sacrificing it to the Lord, lifting it up to the Lord. And they're saying, we trust that you'll bring the rest of the harvest to us. We trust that here's our firstborn son. We trust that you'll watch over our nation. That was a common thing in, I think it was the, I forget who exactly, but like Samuel's a similar example of this. Samuel was, his mother cried out to the Lord for him, firstborn son, and finally the Lord answers her prayers and she has a son. And what does she do with her firstborn son? She gives him up to the Lord. She's trusting the Lord that the Lord will watch after her family. So what do we do with our first fruits? What, this is an image of our tithe. We do this with our tithe. The first thing you should do with your money is set out your tithe and your offerings and say, this is my first fruit to the Lord. I promise to, that you'll be in charge of the rest of my money. And so it's an act of trust in the Lord, a feast. Then we move on to the Feast of Weeks. And this is a really cool one because it's just at the end of the harvest, they thank God for bringing home a full harvest. Um, I, a picture of this I've had, which is really cool, is reading about family worship throughout history. And one of the things they mention is doing, they'd have family worship, which was usually reading the scripture and singing and praying together. It was like a mini church service, mini liturgy. And they did it in the morning all together before anything was done, and they did it in the evening after everything was done. And in the, this was every day, <laughs> two times a day, and this was common in church history. 
but one of the, the things, the differences between the morning one and the evening one was the morning one was, you know, asking God and trusting God that he would give them what they needed for the day and saying, Lord, give us our daily bread. And then the evening was full of prayers of thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, for sustaining us today. And so it bookends, but the key point here is focused on God, right? Trusting in God, having faith in God, thanking him for his providence. So we move on to the Feast of Trumpets. Um, There's not much in scripture to really explain, like we, we in our culture really want like a main purpose of something. What is today for? Um, it explains what the day is like, and that's pretty much it. There's some assumptions that because of this, the trumpet aspect to it, that it's connected with another significant moment that was tied in with trumpets, and you can all probably guess that's probably might be Jericho. I don't know. <laughs> no one knows. But uh, Jewish tradition marks it marks their New Year by this day. So it's a very big day. It's it's like a one. It's a Sabbath once a year with a lot of trumpets <laughs> in celebration because it's a new year, right? So then we move on to the Day of Atonement, and this is kind of takes a different tone than we're used to. You know, we might not call this a feast because, well, it's a day of fasting. It's, it's the one day of fasting a year that the Lord actually lays out in his law to do regularly, like annually, right? There's, every other day, is a, it's a special day of fasting. He would call, you know, kings would call the nation together to fast, or you would fast individually, or whatever. This is the, the fast that is once a year, and this is the day that the priests would, everyone would come together broken, contrite, and making sacrifices for their sins. And the priest, the high priest, would prepare himself, you know, make sacrifices for his own sins. And then this was the only day that anyone and only the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence dwelt. For the sole purpose of seeking God for forgiveness. Seeking God, not just for himself, the high priest, he already did his sacrifice. He's pleading in the place of the entire nation. And this is a holy convocation. Everyone gathered together and did this together. Then... Leviticus 23 ends with Feast of Booths. And this is a cel- this one's the only one that specifically says to make it a celebration. Um, and it's a celebration to God for keeping Israel safe while in the wilderness, for sustaining them. Their, their clothes didn't wear out for 40 years in the desert. Their, shoe, their sandals didn't wear out for 40 years in the desert. They had food in the desert. They had water in the desert. And another thing that's crazy I don't think we think about very often is like no enemies came and wiped them out while they were in the desert. <laughs> like you're a sitting duck in the desert, right? It'd be really easy to like wipe out an entire nation. You're seeing this nation that's growing pretty fast, pretty large, and they're sitting at your doorstep and they're like totally exposed. And they didn't get wiped out. That's amazing. And so God sustained them, and so they celebrate. So an idea here I want to get across is, is, you know, Scripture doesn't specifically, it gives some instructions on, like, what to eat, what not to eat, um, what sacrifices to make and what not. But what this would look like to a Jew in that time is, I want to get across the holy convocation thing. They were coming together, and what did people do when they came together? If it wasn't specifically said by God, it's not like they came together and were like, well, God didn't say we had to fast today, but since we're all together, we might as well fast. 
They didn't do that. It was feasting. It was celebration. It was, it was enjoying being together in fellowship. Um, I, the picture that comes to my head is, you know, I was raised in the U.S. My parents were fairly patriotic, I guess. I don't know. But my grandparents more so than any, anything. Um, the 4th of July was a huge deal with, in my family. Uh, mostly just because we were getting together with friends and family and feasting, you know? Was that in the, you know, when people were like, let's make it a national holiday, this will be Independence Day, and uh, part of the celebration will be everyone gets together and has a cookout where they eat hot dogs and drink pop and watch fireworks. Like, no one drew that up. We came up with that. Why? Because that's in our nature. If no one tells us not to do celebration, we're going to do celebration, <laughs> right? And that's natural. That's what you would imagine the Sabbath day was like, right? That's what it would, even the Day of Atonement, I'm sure there's an aspect of like, imagine this, you're, you're fasting for a whole day, yeah, so you're not feasting, but you're seeking for God's forgiveness and you're spending this whole day, you've traveled miles and miles and miles, stopped your work, which is a big deal. People, you know, Catherine made a mention today of, of people, the clergy having a difficulty of saying, how do we reach these people who are literally spending every moment just trying to eat, to survive? <laughs> and God tells them to stop everything travel hundred or miles and miles wherever you are in the, the nation uh, could be pretty far and for one day of fasting and so you're there and it's a big deal imagine a kid's like what are we doing here why do we walk all this way this is unusual and they're there and you're waiting for this priest to go into the holy of holies to see like is he going to die or is he going to come out and say, like, God's forgiven us all. <laughs> like, everyone's, like, on the edge of their seats waiting for this guy to come out. And then what happens when he comes out? Are they sad? <laughs> They're super happy. <laughs> and then what happens after they break their fast? <laughs> it's a feast, probably. They're like, thank goodness we made another year. Like... <laughs> The Lord's forgiven us. This is awesome. We deserved death and he's given us life. He accepted, the good, he accepted this one high priest in exchange for all of us sinful people. And I was thinking about this in, in regards to Lent and how I think twisted our cultures made it. Right? We spend 40 days of what a lot of us take to mean um, what are you going to give up for Lent? <laughs> we take it as like a 40 days of, of having our head down and wearing sackcloth and ash all over us. All right? I think more so, Lent should, should look, and I know people who, who've celebrated this in the right tone, and it's done. If people know what Lent can be like if they know the history of it, but us as ignorant Americans who don't study anything, <laughs> don't do this. But I think it's much more similar to, to Advent than anything else. It's a looking forward to Easter. There should be like, like in the same breath, you should say, oh Lord, I'm so sorry for my sin. I'm broken and contrite. And in the same breath, you should say, thank you God for sparing me. And so it's a celebration. Lent should be a celebration. It should be or a building anticipation of a, a big celebration on Easter where we gather together as a holy convocation and celebrate Christ's resurrection. So a cool picture of this, uh, to get the idea, again, we're trying to build a picture here of like a feast, a celebration of a, of a thanking God. You're focused on God and what does that do for you? It causes celebration. It causes unification. And a good picture of this is, is Nehemiah 8, 
9 through 10. This takes place during the Feast of Booths, okay? And this is a restoration. I don't know if you're familiar with Nehemiah. Um, it's a really, really significant book for me. I, I really enjoy it. It's wonderful. Um, it's the return of the Israelites to Jerusalem is what Nehemiah is all about. They're coming back and trying to restore or rebuild these ancient ruins. And so they come back, and, and I think this is, this is a, a somewhat proper response and a response a lot of us have when we think about our sin and we hear God's word and we think about his law. Um, this is how they responded. The Nehemiah, again, this is right after Nehemiah, they found God's word. That had been lost to them. It's so cool. Like, they found God's word. And some people were hearing this for the first time. That's significant. So, what do they do? Imagine, imagine uh, I think some of us have a hard time wrapping our heads around this because a lot of us have been pre-evangelized. We've, you know, maybe grown up in a, a Christian family or whatever. We've heard God's word since we were a kid, whether we heard it or not, you know, whether we listened to it or not, I should say. Um, I think one of the closest people I know to this is probably John Bradbury, you know, didn't have much of hearing God's word. He found God's, or, you know, God's word was found for John Bradbury when he was an adult. Okay, so I'm sure he had a similar experience to this. This was probably his first response, and this was the first response of all these Israelites who were in captivity, taken from, you know, living in a foreign land, trying to uphold God's law without his law present, <laughs> and without, you know, the freedom to do so. They were oppressed. They were oppressed and burdened. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this, is, this day is holy to the Lord your God. This is a holy convocation. We're gathered together, and it's holy, and it's for God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping, when they heard the words of the law. Makes sense. I would, I frequently do this, right? This is, I think about God's law and I think about who I am and how often I break it and it makes me weep. And it should. That's a good response. But it should be in the same breath where we have this next response. Then he said to them, go eat the festival foods, drink the sweet drinks, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your refuge. Amen. From that sorrow, from that mourning, from your sin, from the breaking of the law, the Lord is your refuge. So the Levites silenced all the people saying, be still for the day is holy, do not be grieved. So this is the picture. Nehemiah got it. He got what the picture was. It actually goes on. It says, then all the people, if you're wondering whether they listened to him or not, it says, then all the people went away to eat, drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great feast because they understood the words which had been made known to them. This is beautiful. Go home and read Nehemiah tonight. All of it. You can read it in one day. It's great. Um, this is the picture of what these celebrations were like. This is what Nehemiah understood what a holy convocation was. It wasn't mourning and weeping. It was, it was feasting, celebrating, thanking God that, yes, the law condemns you. Or it was the law that taught your heart to fear. But it was also... The law, or yeah, it was 
It was grace that taught your heart to fear, but it was grace that also your heart, your fear relieved. Your fear relieved, huh? Your fear's relieved. Your fear's relieved, right? Grace. Grace, the law, you know, you, grace teaches you the law, and it causes your heart to fear. It causes you to go into mourning and weeping. And it's also grace that teaches you that Christ came as an atoning sacrifice and that your fear should be relieved. So in the same breath of, oh Lord, I'm unworthy, it should be, thank you, Lord, for sparing me. You know, I could have had the temptation when I started dating Christiana to think, man, she's out of my league, I don't deserve her, woe is me. Right? I could have responded by trying to work harder to be someone that was worthy of her. I could have tried, you know, I could have just been a, like, like, head down, like, depressed all the time because, like, I just know she's going to break up with me at some point. No, it was in the same breath where I was like, she's out of my league. Thank you, God. So, the purpose of the Sabbath. We have a picture of it, hopefully, and, and a picture of rest. This is what rest looks like. Gathering together. There are times where rest is fasting, but it's together. It's, it's, it's focusing on the Lord. It's a day, a holy day set apart for the Lord. So we rest. The purpose of the Sabbath. Mark 27, I alluded to this. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. That's pretty straightforward. Think about that, ponder on it, memorize it. So, I was going to read all of Isaiah 58, but we're not, because there's not enough time. Um, You should read this. It's a great chapter. If you want to understand fasting and the benefits of fasting, um, read Isaiah 58. How to fast. And this is big in this season that we're going into of, of seeking the Lord together. You've got to read Isaiah 58. You have to read Isaiah 58. It'll help you. It will help generations after you if you read Isaiah 58. So there's certain promises the Lord makes. And in my list, there's a million different lists. And this is the list that I think is, is something I... I can make arguments for all of these points of the blessings from fasting. But one of the first things that, that this says about fasting is like, don't, don't hang your head low. Don't like make people know that you're fasting. Don't let people know that you're fasting. Um, go out, be happy, be joyful, and serve people. And don't be a grumpy Gus. But then there's these blessings. So the purpose of, you know, and when I see blessings in Scripture, I think that, like, I, th- I see a thing, uh, like God saying, do this thing. And if we want to know what the purpose of doing that thing is, it's like these blessings. <laughs> That's a pretty easy jump to make, I, I think, and I hope. So, you know, and the ultimate, the penultimate point or the purpose of those blessings is that you would glorify God and praise him. So again, we're, we're saying, do this thing, here's these blessings, and praise God that he's blessed you. So some of these blessings, and, and I say these are blessings because if you're doing them, they're being done for others. It says, go and free the oppressor. It says, like, free slaves, free the oppressed, you know, like free people who are being oppressed, let off your servants, you know, those people who owe you money, let off of them. And so if we're all doing that, then people who are oppressed are getting set free. So one of the promises is freedom for the, oppress- for the oppressed, it should be. It says, the poor will be fed, housed, and clothed. You'll gain understanding. There's benefits of physical healing. You know that you'll have righteousness. You know that sin that plagues you and makes you mourn and weep. It will turn into righteousness. You'll 
experience God's glory. You'll have answers to prayer. God doesn't hear someone who's like actively and willingly sinning. And, and I don't want to like, this is a side point, so I don't want to dwell on this and, and get it twisted. Like, there's a difference between like, being like struggling with onset sin and like being broken and contrite about it and coming to the Lord for help with it and saying, I don't care about your law. I like my sin. You can have two people that are caught in the same sin, doing the same thing, and one person is broken about it and the other's not. And the Lord's not going to hear the one that's not broken over their sin. You don't have the person who's not sinning, by the way. That's not an option. <laughs> like, there's none of us. None is righteous, no, not one. But you have that, that answer to prayer. You, you, I think this is a blessing. You'll be a witness to people. Your gloom will be lifted. Um, if you want to know the answer to depression... And being downcast, it's the Lord. It's trusting in his providence. It's, it's seeking him. How can you be depressed about your life when you're considering the God who made heaven and earth? And what he's going to do in the end. How he's going to raise us all into life. And you'll have guidance. You'll have satisfaction. You'll be strengthened. And those ancient ruins will be rebuilt. By the way, all of these were answered for, for those Israelites in Nehemiah, right? Like if you're, if you're wondering, like they were fasting, they sought the Lord, and their prayers were answered really dramatically. A foreign king who has no business in letting his people go back to to a nation that, by the way, like Jerusalem was like a key city. It was really well, like good for defense and all this stuff. And like a nation can grow big and strong there. And he's like, go back, grow big and strong. I'm not worried. What kind of king does that? Unless it's a king's whose heart is in the hand of God. So their prayers were answered. And then we go to Luke 4. I think this is a wonderful picture. This is, this is what Christ says he came for, Right? But why did Christ come? What, Christ came to give Sabbath, right? And so what does his Sabbath look like? The Spirit of the Lord is on, upon me because he anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to, procl to proclaim the release, to proclaim release to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. That is Jesus' idea of the Sabbath. I actually want to go back and, and read part of this. Um, no, that's fine. We don't have time. But you'll see that further on in, in Isaiah 58. It spends most of the time talking about fasting, but then it ends with the Sabbath and that God should be your delight. And it's saying, like, all these things are good things. Like, that's the point of a Sabbath. That's the point of rest is, what is rest? It's being set free from, like, bondage. It's being set free from oppression. That's God's idea of rest. It's not taking time off work. Your bondage and oppression probably isn't work. It might be part of your work, but it's not your work that you're doing. Okay, and your rest isn't going to come from skipping out on work. You know, this was actually like the reason God had to say take time off work was because it was a really difficult thing. It was a thing that could quickly become your God. It was a thing that could quickly become like, how am I supposed to focus on God if I'm focusing on my own works and strivings to solve my issues? Okay. He didn't say stop, like take six days off of the week. He said one day out of seven. He doesn't care about how much or how little you work. Just as long as you take the time to understand that your works aren't going to save you. So he says, I'll save you. 
I'll give you a day of rest. Come to me and remember the time I saved your firstborn son. Come to me and remember the time that I kept you and saved you while you were wandering in a wilderness for 40 years. Come to me and remember when I made myself an atoning sacrifice for you. Come to me and, and trust that I'll take care of tomorrow for you. That's what rest is. Rest is, well, it's, it's faith in God, right? So Hebrews lays out this really cool picture of what rest isn't or how you don't enter rest. So we can read the reverse negative and say, how do I enter rest? Well, don't do what the Israelites did in the wilderness, Hebrews 3.18 says, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? I'm disobedient. I probably wouldn't have entered God's rest except for something, uh, except for a sacrifice being made in my place. For one who was obedient, for the, the second Adam who was obedient, and so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. He's referring right now to when the scouts, the spies came back from the promised land and 10 out of the 12 said, uh-uh, giants can't do it, right? But the Israelites should have been like, well, Our God caused water to turn into blood. And he protected our firstborn children. And he brought us out of one of the greatest nations of the times captivity and set us free from the oppressor. He caused a sea to part in half. And as we were just out of it in the nick of time, caused that same sea to come crashing down on our enemies. I would be more scared of an Egyptian on a chariot than a giant. Have you ever been up close to a big horse when it rears up? (laughs) Have you ever had someone drive by you with a wheel with spikes sticking out of it or with a spear pointed at you? Like these guys were like the elite soldiers and they were saved from them and now they're scared of giants they haven't even seen yet. Because God promised them rest and they said, no, our giants are too big. These guys in here are too big. We're not going to enter that rest because we don't believe God actually promised to to us. And so how often do we do that? So you jump down to chapter 4, says, Therefore we must fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed we have had good news preached to us, good news of being set free from the captor, from sight being given to you, just as they also did, but the word they did, heard did not benefit them because they were not united with those who listened with faith. Consequently, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let's make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall or fail or fall by following the same example of disobedience. And jump down to Matthew 11. I was supposed to be keeping up with that. Sorry, guys. I had those all on the page and I didn't keep up with them. So, Matthew 11:28. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is comfortable and my burden is light. Uh, 
a sermon I was listening to, they made the point where it's, it's an assumed thing, if you read this correctly, that the person already has a yoke or a burden on them. Again, there's this image of being freed from your burden or your oppression. How? By taking on God's burden. <laughs> right? It's not taking off all your burdens and walking around without a yoke, getting no work done. It's Real rest comes from being concerned about God and his ways. So if you're in ministry and you're burdened and tired and weary and, and uh, you know, the phrase we use all the time as, as millennials and such is burnout. Like, why are you burnout? God's doing, should be doing all the work. He's the, the one carrying the heavy part of the yoke. If you're doing all the work, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> That's why it's heavy. That's why you're burnt out. So if you want rest, trust in the Lord. So it's an excellent thing. So that's the point of the message, okay? Rest comes from trusting in the Lord and trusting in Him to do the work and joining Him in that. That's how you get rid. That's what the Sabbath looks like. So there's another misconception in our culture is like the Lord's Day, you know, there should be an article that was in your outline about the Lord's Day, okay? That's a great article. Read it. Greg and Deanna wrote it. Excellent article. There's a misconception in our culture that the Lord's Day is like a day to do nothing. I'm going to rest. I'm going to take naps. I'm not going to do any ministry work. I'm not going to go out to eat with people because being with people makes me tired. If you're one of those people, that's, that's this guy being... I'm not a social butterfly that gains energy from being around people. I have a social me, you know, energy meter, and once I hit it, it's like, it's a sacrifice to be with you. Sorry. <laughs> but it's one I'm happy to make, and I get lots of benefits from it. Lots of blessings from that sacrifice. <laughs> but it's not about not doing work. The, Sunday's not about having time off work so that you can take a nap. That's not how you find your rest. A lot of us here do a lot of things on Sundays. And it can seem like work. And in a way, it is work. But it should be work that's focused on the Lord. And it should be work that we're doing because we're burdened by the Lord to do it. And if we look at it that way, we won't be burnt out. We won't be oppressed. And we'll have a light yoke, a comfortable yoke. It's wonderful. Great stuff. So we're, this last point here is, is Tiffany alluded to, is one of the things we had a few months ago was a, a, a small, tiny little, you know, Dixie cup worth of seeking God and his anointing on us, right? And we're in a season now that a lot of the leadership has like come together and been like, hey, like, let's do this like more. <laughs> let's seek the Lord more. This is God's laying it on our hearts as a church to seek him in this season. And that's been confirmed by lots of people, not, not even just people on the leadership team. Like lots of people come together like, let's seek the Lord diligently in this season. You know, we're in the, between the season of Lent and Pentecost. Now, an interesting point here is Pentecost is, is the same day as um, the Feast of Weeks, I think it is. It's the, the end of the Feast of Weeks, right? So what you got here is, is you've, got, you've got Passover, right? Because we're talking about Lent, Easter, and then you've got Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. And here's the harvest, right? And the Lord came as a first fruit of that harvest. And he sent his Holy Spirit on Pentecost so that we could glean the last of it. And we're in that season right now as a church where we need to 
to glean some of this harvest that's waiting for us. How are we going to do that? Well, one way is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, there's an excellent booklet. I call it a booklet. It's, it's like, I don't know how many pages this book is, but it's a wonderful book. Um, especially if, if you're not just looking for instruction on like being baptized in the Holy Spirit, but like if you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, you know, baptized in the Holy Spirit, this is wonderful to like, how do I remain in a spirit or remain in God's presence? How can I be filled and filled and filled and refilled and refilled and refilled with God's spirit? That's important. You know, we put emphasis on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I think a lot of us assume that, like, that's the moment, and then after that, we're like, I don't need to be refilled, do I? You do. You do. You could be you could have been baptized in the Holy Spirit for like 40 or 50 years now and you still need refilled with God's Spirit. And so this book's excellent for that. And if you're looking for it, it's, it's in the description on the video. Um, the 99 cent Kindle version is linked in there. Um, the outline I spoke about today on the Lord's Day is linked in the video. So if you want to go back and find those links. But you can also find a paperback for pretty cheap. Okay. It's light reading. You can read it in one sitting, and it will benefit you. Or you could take longer and meditate on it. So that's How to Be Filled with the Holy Spirit by A.W. Tozer. So now we come to the time of communion. So we come to this Sabbath table today as a holy convocation. We celebrate a kind of first fruits by eating this bread, a symbol of Christ's body, trusting that he will be a first fruit of a resurrection we look forward to. We celebrate a kind of a day of atonement by drinking this wine, a symbol of Christ's blood, thanking God for providing the sacrifice needed to free us from the burden of sin and death. We celebrate a solemn rest in God's good and willing. It's, he's, it's good and he's, he's willfully is providential for us and in our lives. And we come to this table unified by the faith in those things. So let's come to the table.